0: This episode of the Dirtbag Diaries is brought to you by Patagonia, makers of high-quality clothing and gear for outdoor sports, world travel, and daily lives lived in harmony with nature. Visit them on the web at patagonia.com. The gurgling of a coffee maker. It's a sound that many of us take for granted, a sound so ingrained in our days that we hardly hear it, much less appreciate it. But what if you spent 300 days a year living out of a duffel bag, hunkered in a tent, or sleeping in a motel room? A gurgling coffee maker could start to sound a lot like home.
1: The last two weeks I was in uh, Montana, Oregon, San Francisco, Yosemite, Tahoe, and I leaped for Kentucky uh, on Monday with a quick trip to Yosemite in between. I've learned to really appreciate the days and nights that I'm at home, and I think the highlight is when I can use my own coffee maker and sleep in my own bed. There's just something really special about brewing your own coffee in the Mr. Meet coffee. Corey
0: Rich, photography juggernaut, adventurer, storyteller. You may not have heard of him, but I guarantee that at one point or another, you've seen his photos. His images have made you daydream, they've brought you into the lives of professional athletes, and taken you to some of the world's most incredible wild places. You've cut them out and hung them above your desk. Over the last 10 years, no photographer has captured the essence of the dirtbag lifestyle better than Corey. Nobody works harder. He's up before dawn, out all day, and back to his tent after nightfall. His work has graced the pages of Outside, National Geographic Adventure, Climbing, The New York Times Magazine, even The Economist. Work, adventure, and daily life blur together into a single existence centered around capturing images and telling stories. By all accounts, he lives the dream.
1: 98% of the time, I'm photographing people that are, that are my friends, and they're people that I would choose to spend time with. I'm, I'm not standing on the side of a football field on the sideline, pointing my camera at athletes with numbers on their back, who I'll never know, who I'll ne- never spend time with, who I'll never have, have conversations with.
0: Now, there is no textbook on adventure journalism, but if there were one, it would contain one single steadfast rule. You can't photograph adventure from a safe distance. You just can't. And if you photograph these sports in these wild places, you're exposed to the same risks as the athletes you cover. There are no sidelines in wilderness. El Cap does not have a press booth. Even for the most safety conscience, danger can come in many forms, falling rock, a momentary lapse in concentration, even a bad case of the itch. Even dream jobs come with occupational hazards. They say a picture is worth a thousand words, but which words? And if a photograph could speak, what would it really say? This week, Corey Rich gives us photos and the untold stories behind them. I'm Hall, and you're listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. I want you to step back to 1996 extreme sports have yet to carve out a niche in large media outlets john krakauer's into thin air is about to release and it's the book that usher the mountains and the athletes who call them their playing fields into the american mainstream outside magazine is just about to become a household staple magazines like sports illustrated and espn the magazine are starting to accept that climbing surfing skiing are more than just hobbies but bona fide sports the adventure realm is beginning to leave the fringe, and Corey Rich is at the center of this movement. In 1996, Corey was a 20-year-old journalism student at San Jose State. He scored a prestigious year-long photo internship at the Modesto B. He was on his way towards an incredible career in newspaper photojournalism. There was one problem. Corey, like many of us, had a climbing habit. After Friday night deadlines, he would hop into a civic hatchback he had outfitted with a bed, drive to Yosemite, and spend the weekend climbing and shooting. Monday mornings, he would wake before dawn, dive into the Merced River, and head back to work. Corey understood that there was more to climbing and surfing than a never-ending adrenaline rush. The dirtbag lifestyle had substance to it. There were stories in campfires, in frost-coated sleeping bags. The stories needed to be told. So he saved up money, finished his internship, took a semester off of school, bought a hundred rolls of film, and set out into the West to see if he could tell those stories through his photos. And there was something gritty and raw in his work that immediately distinguished him from the established outdoor photographers. He had combined a journalist's eye for the story with a dirtbag's mentality, and it immediately struck a chord with photo editors. And then he took a photo that changed his life.
1: I believe there are definitely photographs that are the the turning points in a photographer's career. They're sort of the, the, the stepping stones. Um, that move you from from one area in your career career or one level in your career to the next. And I think the best example of that was a uh, a photograph that I made on a surf trip to mainland, Mexico. I was traveling with Tom Bulow, who uh, shared shared the uh, same hall, same floor of the dorm with me at San Jose State. He was and, uh, Tom had actually been a professional surfer and left the uh, professional surf circuit to go back to college.
0: On spring break, they drove down the coast, skipping between fishing villages and swells on the Pacific coast before settling into a small town called Pasquales. It was perfect. A good break, a cantina where they ate breakfast, lunch, and dinner, they drank beer at night, and surfed it all day. Then things went wrong. Tom was stung by several jellyfish while out surfing, and he plunged into anaphylactic shock from the toxin. In desperate need of medical treatment, Corey began looking for help, frantically searching the village.
1: And it turned out that the only person in this little fishing village of Pasquales who could administer an injection was uh, the, the waitress at the cantina in town.
0: Corey marched Tom into this dark, smoky cantina, helped him onto the table while the waitress prepared the injection. Tom lay there, sweating, swearing, with no shoes or no shirt.
1: And Tom is laying on the same tables that we eat dinner with, uh, with this, this waitress shoving this syringe in his ass. And I just, and it was just really gritty documentary photography. I'm just you know, kind of half concerned for Tom, half hysterically laughing with tears coming out of my eyes and, of course, trying to document this on film. And so I snapped just two photographs with direct flash, very harsh light.
0: The photo turned heads. It was gritty, raw, and most of all, it was real. It was the type of thing that you just couldn't fake and Patagonia ran it as a national advertisement in outside magazine. Meanwhile, Corey had returned back to school at Fresno State. He was juggling classes with a blossoming freelance career, and his grades were already suffering.
1: I'm beginning to make some money with photography. What I'm realizing is the harder I work, the less I have to go to the school. So I'm just shooting an enormous amount of film, and this and phone rings, and I happen to be in my dorm room. And I know enough at this point not to answer the phone like an idiot, you know, n- none of the college greetings. Instead of a what's up, I answer instead with a hello, this is Corey. And the woman on the other end of the line says, you know, I'm so-and-so from Quaca Sports. Have you ever heard of us? And I, and I in fact, I had. And she said, our, one of our executives would like you to come in for a meeting tomorrow if you're available. We uh, We have a project that might be perfect for you.
0: Now to fund, was the original internet site dedicated to covering adventure and the outdoors. The company's CEO had been reading outside when he stumbled across the cantina photo. And it was exactly what Quokka was looking for. Corey sorted through his course schedule, blew off a quiz, and scheduled an appointment for the next morning at Quokka's San Francisco
1: headquarters. Was so, I was so excited, in fact, that I, I got in my Ford Econoline line van and drove that night to San Francisco and parked right in front of Quokka's sports office slept in my van, got up early in the morning, showered in the back of the van with a gallon of water, kind of dumping it over my head, standing in the road, put on my best pants, best shirt, best shoes.
0: Corey found himself being ushered into a room with a large table, a view of the bay, and a dozen executives. They needed a photographer who could document a month-long eco-race through the Moroccan desert. The idea was cutting edge. They were going to use first-generation digital cameras, satellite phones, audio recordings, and then they were going to stream it all back to the internet where readers and viewers could see it online. This is 10 years ago. The photographer would have access to helicopters and all the latest technology. Corey tried to contain his nerves. He pulled out his portfolio and watched it as it made its way around the table until it reached the executive who had seen the cantina shot.
1: And So the conversation went on, and... Uh... Finally, they got to the point where I, they must have felt confident enough that I was the guy for the opportunity. And, and, he, and he asked, they asked the question, you know, one, are you available? And so I opened, of course, a school binder, I was looking at test schedules and kind of, you know, nodding my head and making some groans. Like, could I adjust the schedule? I said, I think I could do it. I think I can pull this off.
0: Then they asked the one question Corey wasn't expecting. How much did his services cost?
1: And I thought to myself, oh my god, what if, do they mean, what do I call, like, what is it? What, are, what do they need to pay me to go to Morocco for a month? And in my head, I'm thinking I would pay you guys to go to Morocco for a month, but gosh, if I could walk away with a $1,000 in my pocket and be gone for a month and go to the Sahara Desert, what an amazing opportunity. So I threw out, just off the top of my head, a $1,000.
0: Silence filled the room. The executives exchanged glances before one chimed in that $1,000 was pretty steep. It seemed a little excessive for a 30-day trip.
1: And in my head, I'm kicking myself like, God, why did I say so much money? That's insane. Should I say 500? Like, I don't know how to negotiate. I'm a kid sitting there who should be in his chemistry class.
0: Corey panicked. He didn't know what to say and sat there. A 21-year-old college student amongst a room full of MBAs, completely out of his league, with no negotiating skills, no experience, no representation. And he did what most of us would do in that situation. He froze. Mistaking his silence for a bargaining technique, the executive countered with $800.
1: And so there's this, again, a long silence. I think, 800 that's unbelievable. And then, but, I, but I was trying to be kind of calm, cool, and collected. And instead of immediately snapping back, with like, $800 sounds perfect, I again kind of paused for a couple of seconds, and then finally the executive again comes back and says, OK, $900, goddammit, but you realize it's 30 days. And then this light bulb went off in my head. I had this sort of this epiphany, this realization that like my entire life had just changed. They didn't mean $900 for the whole trip. They meant $900 per day. And that was it. Like my grades proportionally went down. (laughs) It wasn't just about the money. It was about this realization that there were incredible opportunities out there. There were incredible projects, incredible photographic journeys. Um, that I could be a part of, and simultaneously make money while being a part of these cool adventures. Yes, yeah, so I was either twenty or twenty-one years old. In fact, I think it was a big deal that I was twenty-one because, I, like, I was able to drink alcohol at lunch with with the team. You know, I celebrated silently in my head that, like, this is so cool. I can actually drink wine with these guys legally. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and you're getting paid for it. That worked out well.
1: That's right. And they're paying for it. Yeah. It was great. They they were paying for the wine. I was allowed to drink it. And I wasn't eating at Taco Bell while driving my van. (laughs)
0: Let's jump forward a few years. Cory is firmly established as one of the best photographers out there. A writer by the name of Chris Ballard approaches him about a story on Chasing Winter. A piece all about people who live for snow. Sports Illustrated is interested in the piece, but before the magazine is ready to commit to sending a writer and a photographer to the southern hemisphere, they need to see the domestic half of the story. Pro skier Kasha Rigby is the perfect personality to set the story around. The idea is simple. Corey and the writer would fly to Salt Lake City and tag along for five days to capture Kasha's entire life. Skiing, work, going to dinner with friends, and Bikram yoga. It was the first time Corey had heard of Bikram yoga. Kasha warned him that it was going to be hot, extremely hot. But it was December in Salt Lake, and it's like 20 degrees out. It's snowing. How hot could it be?
1: And I, I was I was sharp enough to understand that I really needed to protect my camera. When you go from, you know, twenty degrees outside to hundred and five degrees in a humid room, the camera fogs up, so I was I had a trash bag and I put my camera inside the trash bag and I put it in the Bikram yoga room and I noticed as I opened the door to set the camera inside, like this wave of heat hit me. And I thought, Ooh, that is really warm and humid. But I but you know, you can tough out a lot of things in life and I figured I could probably handle a from yoga class. A bunch of women stretching. That didn't sound too difficult. We go in for the class, and I walk in in my uh, Levi's and T-shirt. And I, I quickly realized it was extraordinarily hot. I quickly lost my shirt. A couple of minutes later, lost my shoes, lost my socks, eventually rolled up my Levi's to the point that they were, like, stopped by my thighs, or I would have rolled them up even farther, almost into a Speedo-type scenario. (laughs) But it was so ridiculously hot that I finally realized I needed shorts. Like, I I, I I could hardly handle the temperature in the room.
0: Sweat's dripping off the camera. Corey's starting to feel horrible. And all the while, the writer, Chris, is watching through a glass window and laughing as Corey sheds another layer. Finally, Corey reaches his breaking point, leaves the room, and asks the woman at the front desk if they sell shorts.
1: And she said, you know, we don't actually sell shorts, but we do have a lost and found. And so she pulled out this basket, lost and found basket, and I kind of dug, dug through to the lost and found basket, found this perfect pair of black small shorts, and ran into the men's room, changed into the black shorts, ran back into the Bikram yoga studio.
0: Corey finished shooting. The class ended. The participants were mostly women, and they filed out. But Corey followed the two men from the class towards the male locker room.
1: And I had no intent of taking a shower, but you have no choice. It's just so hot, and you've sweat so much that I had no option but to jump in the shower. I figured I would do the uh, you know paper towel drying technique in the bathroom there. And this awkward thing happened where one of the gentlemen was clearly in a rush. He was a professional, you know, probably rushing back to the law firm or rushing back to the you know, his practice. And the other guy seemed to be lingering. Like as I, as I, kind of, as I got out of the shower, he kind of stood in the shower, and I'm sitting there trying to like towel off with paper towels. When he kind of awkwardly announces from from the uh, the other side of the lockers, he says, "Did you get those shorts from the lost and found?" It's kind of a long silence, and I thought, "Oh, geez. Probably his shorts, and I responded. I said, "I did, I did." Are these your shorts? And he said, "Well, they are actually." And I kind of profusely apologized. I, I you know, I'll wash them. I'll FedEx them back to you. No problem. And he, um, and then he went on. There was kind of this long silence, and then he finally said, "You know anything about genital itch?" <laughs> and I, of course my jaw kind of hit the floor and I I walked back into the shower with a Brillo pad and started scrubbing frantically. But I think that's just one of the risks of adventure photography.
0: The strength of the photographic medium lies in its ability to package chaos and tumult into something that we can digest and consume without being overwhelmed. A photographer composes a shot, hits the world into neat angles in a 4x6 frame, and takes a picture. But what gets cut out? What's happening outside of the frame? Often that's where the real story lies. Squares. A detail fits the whole. We've all seen the pictures. Tommy Caldwell frees two El Capitan routes in 24 hours, a feat that ranks amongst the greatest climbing achievements ever. 6,000 feet of climbing, miles of hiking, sleep deprivation, pain, suffering, swollen feet. By the end, Caldwell was falling asleep while hanging a belays and barely able to form complete sentences. Of course, documentation of the event is spectacular. It seems as if Cory has been placed by wings on the edge of this massive cliff, as if he is merely stopping by to snap a few picks. But nothing could be further from the truth. Cory was in the thick of the action for most of the day. A shoot like that requires days of planning, keen organization, and timing. It requires a lot of heavy backpacks hiked to the summit of El Cap, and it requires hundreds of pounds of ropes, lots of ropes. And even for the most experienced photographer or rigger, sometimes it can get a little confusing. 2,000 feet above the ground, a minor mental lapse can have life-ending consequences.
1: You know, I, I'm, I'm very safety conscious because I can't get hurt. When I get hurt, everything comes to a screeching halt. If I can't be out skiing or climbing or hiking or biking, I'm not out making pictures. Now, that said, there are definitely moments in this career and in my life where you know, no matter how much calculation and planning takes place in advance, there are just some dangerous situations that have.
0: For Tommy Caldwell, the two climbs were the acme of years of hard work, experience, and relentless training. He would begin climbing at 1 a.m., and at some point, Corey would meet up with Tommy and Beth Rodden via a network of ropes stretching from the summit of El Cap. If Tommy were to succeed on the greater project, he needed to complete the nose route's crux pitch, changing corners. Also known as the Houdini pitch, there simply aren't any holes, and a climber must use his body. His elbows, his knees, hips, face, hands to friction up the wall. On the first attempt, Tommy slipped. He plunged out into the void. The rope went tight, and then Corey noticed that his own rope
1: was in the frame. And and I really didn't like the idea that in the photograph I could see myself attached to the anchor. So Tommy had fallen, and he was about to get lowered back down to the anchor, to uh, to take another take another go at the uh, at the pitch.
0: So this is an exhausting experience for both Tommy and Corey. Corey's trying his hardest to get the shot right now. So he yells down to Beth Roden to untie the free end of his rope from the belay. And the rope gets untied and tossed out into space where it just
1: dangles. We have a lot of fun during these adventures and photo shoots. and So I think I was, either Tommy was making fun of me or I was making fun of Tommy or we were laughing about something. And, and I was repelling at about the same rate that Tommy was being lowered. We're kind of having this dialogue and occasionally you'd hear Beth chime in and say something to make both of us laugh. And, and then Tommy, I remember, kind of looked over at me and he said, wait, stop. And it was just this very innocent, wait, stop for a second. So you, you natural, your natural reaction is you just stop. He said, wait, stop. You stopped. And so I stopped and he said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm just going to lower to the anchor. And I looked down and about six inches below my hand was the end of the rope with no knot tied in it. And I was, and I was just I was repelling at that pace and just in another in another mindset. I was in this dialogue with Tommy and Beth, I was you know, I was thinking in my head about how I was going to photograph his next attempt. And I and I realized in that split second that I was I was I mean, literally a second away from repelling straight off the end of the rope and free falling. 2,000 feet to the valet floor.
0: Lights, squares, a detail flakes the whole.
1: And it was just that, that moment right of all all. The, the, life is so fragile. <laughs> and, and, and no matter how much attention to detail and safety, you can never pay enough attention. And of course, you know, sort of my heart came out of my mouth. And uh, tied a knot immediately in the rope, kind of death gripping the other side of the rope above my greedy gri. And, um, you know, needless to say, I mean, I, uh, I didn't repel off the end of the rope, but well, I'll tell you, that was, that was one of those moments where I was thankful one, that Tommy was looking at me while he was talking, and, uh, and two, to um, still be alive. But remember after all, I'm
0: seen the abstract could you ever could you ever stop could you ever retire
1: it's almost like asking someone you know a, a devout Christian <laughs> will one day you retire I you know this it's just not a job what I'm doing isn't it's not, a, it's not work. I don't clock in and clock out. It's, it's a labor of love, and it's a passion, and it's a lifestyle. Because I think the reason that this career and this lifestyle has proven so rich and fulfilling for me is because that it doesn't boil down. It, I can't distill it down to individual moments. Like, it's the entire journey. And I know this, this sounds maybe a little cliche, but it's, you know, I mean this so sincerely. That it's the entire journey that's so special
0: to me.
1: There was a world out there that they don't teach you about in school. And there is no book on how to get there. It's about experimentation and just gutting it out, working hard, being passionate. And really, really putting your all into photography and telling stories. And I think absolutely, will I evolve? Will I? Will the amount of time I spend on the road, or the types of things I'm photographing, the types of adventures I'm, you know, I'm, will I be willing to sit in a tent from when I'm 60? Probably not. But I think will documenting adventure always be a part of my life? I think the answer is absolutely, without question.
0: To check out more of Corey's work, visit www.coryrich.com. When he's not on the road, he currently works, plays, and lives itch-free in South Lake Tahoe. A special big thanks to the people at Patagonia for contributing to the sustainability of independent media. I'm Fitz Cajal. Thanks for listening to the Dirtbag Diaries.